Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. You may be seated. <clears throat> what we have in First Corinthians is this: uh, is that Paul is writing to an immature church. He's writing to immature people. And he is, even in this passage, getting sarcastic, uh, quite sarcastic. If you read in the commentaries, they'll, they'll say he's speaking with irony, but we know what that means. It means he's being sarcastic. Uh, I asked on the way up, if, I asked uh, Livy if she knew what sarcastic meant, and she said yes. She said sarcasm means, uh, when, you know, when you do stuff. And I said, that is the best definition I've ever heard of that. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> this was, these are the things that happened in the car. Okay, so, so anyway, uh, 
We see Paul in a very godly way treating his children as children. Uh, I remember, I remember uh, when, um, when I was in high school, I, I was on what was called the delayed entry program. And uh, that meant that you, when you joined the army, you could join it and then go through your senior year. Um, and then after your senior year, you go into the military itself. So I did that. Uh, there were bonuses involved and things like that, reasons for teenagers to do that. Um, but that was in uh, the fall of 1990. Those of you that know history know that uh, in 1991, I had this thing called Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, and uh, I became very sobered very quickly as a, as a senior in high school, realizing that I wasn't just getting money for college, uh, I might have to actually do something. Um, and it terrified me. No one else was terrified. Uh, everyone was still worried about what seniors in high school worry about, uh, homecoming, uh, whether or not, uh, you know, so-and-so likes whatever or whoever and all that sort of stuff. But I remember getting really panicky about all that. And then in July of 1991, I entered the military, and I found myself in a place where I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to do anything. And I was surrounded by men that were constantly teaching me how to do stuff and I was anxious to learn because I realized I might die. See, I was a product of uh, the Reagan years, right? In the Reagan years, there were no wars or anything like that. There was money for everybody. We were throwing money at each other in the streets. It was wonderful. And uh, then all of a sudden, I'm sitting here thinking about dying all the time. Um, and I was anxious to listen to what the drill sergeants told me because I was so terrified. Um, we live in a time now, especially as we look at 1 Corinthians, that we find most people are in the 1 Corinthians world. Even uh, as, we, as we look at young people, even older people, it seems we live at a time where 1 Corinthians becomes very real to us. We live at a time where young people do not want to be told anything. We live at a time, I live at a time where young people are in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> I'm getting really close to calling people in their 40s young as well. Uh, time is passing by. But we live at a time where pushing people to be better and to push them into maturity is becoming more difficult. Um, and you know, uh, with the whole thing with, um, with the war uh, coming upon us, <laughs> I think, with Ukraine and all that stuff, um, there's a lot of stories that are coming out, and who knows if they're real, but I heard this one, and I, I'm pretty, I, I like to think it's real. So, um, Elon Musk was uh, sent this, this uh, 
communication that he said, you know, you are sending, you're trying to send people to Mars and we have people invading us here in Ukraine. You are, you know, successfully landing your rockets, but we have rockets coming in and blowing us up. Why aren't you doing anything for us, basically? It was a push. It was a challenge. Now, most people, famous people and even young people today, if you push them even that much, they then begin justifying themselves. Well, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen. Well, you know, I'm a very busy man. Well, you know, I have, I'm accomplishing things. But instead, as the story goes anyway, he took the challenge and said, all right, what can I do? I can supply the Ukraine with uh, internet and gets their communications going and does everything he can. I bring that up because as we look at this passage, what we have is Paul pushing He's challenging his people. He's getting even sarcastic with them, which in today's world would bring about a how dare you type of look. A who are you to push me? Who are you to get sarcastic with me? We live at a time where particularly young men can't be pushed. As a professor in college, I can tell you, we went from people coming to, to, um, to respond to engagement and new ideas and challenges to what are we paying you people for, where students actually start wondering, hey, if we're paying you, then you should do X for me. Um, I know this sounds strange, but I do teach in an unorthodox way, uh, and so I've had students already this semester come to me and say, um, Dr. Rathbun, I'm just trying to, you know, just, I, I just want to understand um, how I can gain value uh, from your lectures. <laughs> I think that was the nicest way they could say it, and I said, well, in my mind I was thinking, well, you could humble yourself and listen to what I'm saying. I think what she was getting at was, you know, I'm not sure what's gonna be on the test and you're not clear about that. And in my class, the test is when you leave the school, not when you regurgitate information on a piece of paper. But what I'm getting at is we live at a time where when you challenge people, they don't receive the challenge with excitement and eagerness to go out and be different. They see the challenge and it's a how dare you, I'm out of here. It might even be the reason why we see people hang out for a while that come to our church, they're all excited, and then they're challenged. And then suddenly the church down the road seems really nice because that guy would never challenge anybody. <laughs> so if you would, look with me at the context of 1 Corinthians 4. In 1 Corinthians 4, we have an entire context that comes from the entirety of the book uh, that has come before this uh, in verses or chapters 1 through 3. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, you see in verses 10 through 17, you see that everyone's starting to argue with each other. 
They're not arguing with each other over small things or silly things. They're arguing over theology. Some people hold to the theology of Apollos, some hold to the theology of Paul, and they're very interested in the books they're reading and interested in the people they're listening to, and they have heard the podcasts that should be heard, and now they're arguing over theological positions, and the really holy one said, well, I am of Christ, which is supposed to end the argument, but it didn't. And you have these divisions, 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 divisions. As you get in chapter 2, Paul says that you see that people go, are, um, in chapter 1, you have this idea of pride, where everyone is so proud of, what, of their knowledge that they begin bickering, to what they think is relevant in chapter 2. Paul says, what you think is relevant, the wisdom of this world, is not relevant. The wisdom of God is relevant. And as, uh, as you see in immature people, immature people tend to look at, at ideas and they become proud of those ideas because they're proud that they understand those ideas and they want everyone to understand how they understand those ideas. And so then they start pushing their ideas on each other. And then the other part of immaturity is that you want to show everyone how relevant you are. And relevance always is fought on the battleground of this world, where the world wants you to see their relevance there. And Paul says, no, your relevance is not in the world's wisdom. It's in the boring stuff, if I can put it that way. In fact, I would have that I wouldn't even know anything about, about anything except for Christ and him crucified. Well, what does that mean? And as we see with immature people in chapter 3, their growth is stunted because they have misunderstood what growth is. And I see this as a teacher often. People believe my growth is the veracity of which I am able to grasp onto complex ideas. And as I am able to understand complex ideas and communicate them, this is my growth. I am growing in the Lord. How do I know I'm growing in the Lord? Because I have now grasped something, some idea in here that is very interesting and very complex. And if you just ask me about it, I am more than happy to go into great detail for you. And so Paul says in chapter 3, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. As children. Where he said, I can't even give you the deep stuff. I have to keep giving you milk. Now, I want you to understand the irony of chapter three. Chapter three is saying, I have to give you milk. I have to give you the simple stuff because you're not ready for the meat. They thought they were already having the meat. After all, they were already arguing over who was with Apollos and who was with Paul and who was of Christ, and they had all these theological ideas, and they were very proud of these ideas, and they were proud of themselves, and <coughs> they were even relevant. I mean, they had the understanding of the world's wisdom to add to their theological depth, and now Paul's saying, I'm still giving you milk because you're still babies. You're not ready for the big stuff. 
And then in chapter 3, in verse 18, we see the big climax of the problem. And this is the climax of the problem. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. The problem with the Corinthian church is that they thought they were already wise. They thought they were all they already knew all this stuff. And they were wasting their time with this small milk that Paul keeps giving them. This little bit of that, yes, we know Christ crucified, and that's that's great. But did you know, you know, how the natures then interact at the crucifixion? I mean, is there, you know, God's human nature that died, but God's divine nature that did not die? And these are very important things. And Paul's saying, no, this is still. You're not even ready for the the meat yet. And they think they're doing the meat. They think they're there because they think they're already wise. What they don't realize is the wisdom is in wanting to know nothing more than Christ and him crucified. And so Paul keeps telling them to be foolish, to be common, and stop trying to be interesting. I can put it that way. In chapter 1, 27 and 28, Paul tells them to choose the foolish and the weak. and the, God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the low. In fact, he says, that's who you are. There's not many of you that are very smart, is what he's saying. There's not many of you that are of any importance at all. The fact that you're a Christian says that you are one of the weaker ones. And God does this on purpose because... He wants the glory. He's not gonna, he doesn't pick the ones that you would predict are geniuses. He chooses the ones that are absolutely not geniuses. And God still uses you. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul decides to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Also in chapter 2, he says, true knowledge is imparted by the Spirit, not by your amazing brain. And it brings us back to chapter 4. Chapter 4, if we look back at verse 6, he is talking about how in the first, cha- in the first paragraph there, these, the people of Corinth are judging Paul, and saying, we are at a point in our spiritual growth and maturity that we're ready to decide about you, Paul, and to make judgments about you, Paul. And Paul responds, says, basically, who do you think you are to come and talk to me about how you are judging me? He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant, so that none of you will become arrogant. 
in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? <clears throat> one of the most, uh, I think one of the most difficult things it must, it must be to be an uh, elementary and high school teacher is the arrogance that comes when the student leaves and goes into college and starts receiving all this new knowledge and all this new stuff and they think they have reached this new plane of thinking that makes high school and elementary school look stupid compared to you know, what they're learning in their classes. I mean, a freshman can take an intro to, to physics course and start you know, thinking about the wonders of quantum field theory, and that's something that they know their 10th grade literature teacher knows nothing about. And boy, high school is such a waste of time, and elementary school is such a waste of time, because now they have these big ideas from college. And the question is, how, did you, how were you able to understand anything in college? Because there was years upon years of conditioning your brain to learn how to think. And they go into college thinking they're doing it themselves. Isn't that the way it is when it comes to immature people? Immature people who are taught and taught and taught in their church and with the sweat and tears of their pastor and their elders, and they get to a place where they think, now I will judge you. And their ungratefulness for their knowledge, their ungratefulness for what has been put into them becomes very clear. As their knowledge is used in an unnatural way, it leads to a desire for unnatural likeness. What we see is that as the teaching happens, as they want to use their knowledge in an unnatural way, they begin to see themselves as imaging someone. And who is it? As good Christians, we always want to say we're imaging Christ. Who is the Christ you are imaging? What does that Christ look like? This morning for Sunday school, we were talking about how young people oftentimes start creating a God in their mind. It's a God that has a lot of the similarities of our God in Scripture with, uh, with grace and mercy and all that sort of thing, but this God lacks holiness, that's all. And they start worshiping that God, and they, realize, and they may never realize, I don't know, but what is true is that they begin to worship something that isn't God at all. It's someone else. And as they start using their knowledge unnaturally, they begin to image that God that they are actually worshiping. And they begin, their imaging becomes just as unnatural as their knowledge is. We see this as Satan um, 
uh, in Isaiah 14, 14, when Satan says, I will ascend above the highest of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Where Satan himself says, I, I am something that is worthy to be like the most high. I get to make the judgments that the most high would make. I get to decide what is real and his knowledge becomes as unnatural as his likeness is toward God. Eve was approached by Satan in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. And Satan says, and the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve who begins to use her knowledge in an unnatural way, imagining that God is being stingy, imagining God is holding back good from her, decides that's who God really is. He is a stingy God who holds back good, and I will get it myself. And she starts imaging something that isn't God at all. The knowledge that she uses unnaturally makes her imaging of God unnatural. And here in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, what we have are the Corinthians starting to be judges of the apostles. They are judging the apostles. And their knowledge has become so unnatural that their imaging becomes unnatural. They are not imaging God at all. But the whole time they believe they are. I want you to look at the contrast that Paul starts making as he goes into verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 8. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. I want you to think, those of you that have children, some of the conversations you have had with your children, where your children believe they know better than you. They are filled with knowledge. You are still catching up. They have already become rich with with the wisdom that you will not obtain, and they have become the kings, and you are just hoping to reign with them. It is what pride does, right? Pride makes us look stupid. When I was in uh, basic training, there were guys there that thought they knew what they were doing. Uh, they thought they knew better than the, than the drill sergeants. Um, and this was, this was in the early 90s, 91. Our drill sergeants, at least three of them, were, uh, had done time in Vietnam. And so they had an idea of what war was like. Some of the young men in our, uh, in our group in our platoon, still thought they knew better than our drill sergeants. Still thought they had better knowledge about how we're supposed to do our calisthenics, how we're supposed to go about the day, what we're supposed to know about war and things like that. These are the same young men who about an hour into our morning run would be on their hands and knees giving up last night's supper to the ground. And 
And you would think at that point there would be some humility. There's not. Pride is able to get into us so much that we are able to look at those who are superior to us and see them as inferior and in need of our judgment. And here's Paul getting sarcastic and pushing them and saying, you are already filled, you are already rich, you have already become kings without us, and indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. And then he describes himself. For I think God has exhibited us or put us on display, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you, you are prudent in Christ, right? You're the smart ones. You're the ones that figured out how to be a Christian in a cool way. We are the backwards ones that have all the old-fashioned ideas. We are the ones that are still thinking about you know, how we are prone to death and that we have no real value, but you have value because you found the cool way to be a Christian. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. This is dripping with sarcasm. Because what pride has done to the immature Christian is taught him what honor is. Taught him what being distinguished is. Taught him what strength is. And it happens all the time, right? We have... We have people with an idea of what strength is. Strength isn't concentrating on your own congregation. Strength is being the next John Piper. That's strength, right? Uh, weakness, of course, is someone who is you know, working in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in a small church with us. You know, that's weak. Strength is having a gigantic, massive church with people from all over the world, you know, wanting to hear what you have to say next on your next podcast. Weakness are the rules of the house. Weakness is that old-fashioned way of looking at Christianity that is so outdated. Strength is finding your own cool way to be a Christian that still lets you be a, a little bit of a sinner, but God gets you. If we look in verse 9, we, we see these contrasts. The apostle is last. The apostle is sentenced to death. The apostle is a spectacle. Something people make fun of. Verse 8, we see that the, you know, the immature Christian is filled and rich and is a king. In verse 10, we see that the apostle is a fool. He's a dork. Someone that uses all that Christian talk that sounds so stupid. The apostle is weak. 
The apostles without honor, people despise them. But the immature Christian is one who is smart in Christ, strong, distinguished, and honored. What we see is that immaturity persuades the immature to think that they really are smart. Smarter than they really are. And I'll tell you this, if I were Satan, I think the best thing you can do to get soldiers off the battlefield is convince those soldiers that they really are something special and something that deserves honor. I would make sure that the young men that were fighting against me would demand to be honored. And if they weren't honored, if they weren't given a place, if they, if they were pushed instead, if they were told, you know, you need to work on this, before you get any, any kind of responsibility in this church, this is what you need to do. And I would make sure that they were insulted by that. And I would start maybe before even they got to the church is to make sure they had this attitude with their, with their parents. I would reverse it. I would reverse the Ten Commandments. Honor your children, mothers and fathers, so that they see how special they are. That they know they are honored and they see that they really are smarter than you and deserve to be uplifted. Those are the words that I would expect to hear out of Satan's mouth. What we find is immaturity persuades young people and old people that they are more justified than they really are. It astounds me as I work with young people, um, even where I work at, at school, how, well, how good they are at justifying themselves, right? And we... Those of you that are my age and above know what that's like as well. We know how to justify ourselves. This is the sign of immaturity, right? Where when a, if our pastor gets up here and says, come to things that we have here at church, we think, oh, well, I'm very busy. And he doesn't know how busy I am. And we start, we start justifying ourselves right? It's a, it's a hard week. It's not easy to do these things. And he doesn't understand how hard I have it. And besides, right? Church can't tell me what to do. I mean, we have justifications filling our mind, filling our mind, filling our mind. When we discipline our children out of anger, we might justify ourselves and say, well, they need to see that. They need to see, you know, you know like, like, like God, we need to fear. And so they needed to see that outburst that, where I was totally out of control. And young people justify themselves. I will disrespect my parents because they're being unreasonable. And God's on my side. He's okay with some violations of his commandments. 
Immaturity persuades people that we are more capable than we really are. That we don't need extra help. And if we do need help, there's only certain people that we would ever allow give us help. And they better have their own podcast if I'm going to take advice from them. I certainly won't do it from some common person from my own church. Immaturity persuades us that we are more independent than we really are. Maybe some of you have had children that have gotten upset and say, you always tell me what to do while they run off to a room that is in the house that you paid for with their bellies filled with food that you paid for, wearing clothes you paid for, with bright white teeth that you paid for. (laughs) And you think, how can they think they're independent? How can they think they're upset that the person that provides their every single need would, that it would be wrong for them to tell them what to do? And, you know, our world has taught them, right? And I'll say it again, if I were Satan, this is how I would fight. I would make sure young people start really believing that they are capable and independent as they are completely reliant and incapable people. And no matter how many times they fail, I would assure them, well, the only reason you're failing is because uh, of the situation you're in. Uh, Typically, you would do a great job. Immaturity persuades us that we are more admired than we really are. That people really think they should listen to us. Or that people look at us and see someone that really is pretty cool. That when they see us, they see someone that they want to be like. And that's how I see myself is a person that walks around, once people see me, they think, I want to be like that guy. And we believe ourselves to be admired. So that when we get to a state where Satan can really use us, immaturity persuades us that our backseat driving is really useful and legitimate for people to listen to, right? The backseat driver, you know what you should have done there, or you know what we ought to do, you know what the, you know, if people treated people differently in this way and treated me differently, I would be a different person, and we backseat drive all the leadership we have in our lives so we can justify why we are how we are. At that point, you see where immaturity drives us. Immaturity drives us right to a false god in a false religion that admires me. There is truth. I want to be careful how I say this. There is truth to the idea if you have a cold church and people come and visit and they feel like no one's talking to them, that they're going to take off. And that's absolutely true. But I think there is also those of us that if we are not admired, and we are not told and affirmed 
about how wonderful we are, then we really do get upset and we want a church that will affirm us. We don't want a church that's going to push us. We don't want a Spartan church. We want an Athens church. Right? I think it's cool that this church is in Spartanburg. Sparta. I mean, Sparta was the place where you learned to fight. I mean, the Spartans used to have kids, when they had their kids, they would have their kids fighting each other at really young ages to teach them how to fight young. And they grow up fighting. They grow up on sleeping on the ground. They grow up tough. And that was Sparta. And of course, Athens was a was gentler, kind, kinder place. And I know some of you historians would say, well, you know, Athens beat Sparta. And I get it. But I'll tell you this, we have lost our sense of Sparta as Christians. We insist on the Athenians telling us how wonderful we are to gently put us in a cushioned seat with, you know, the right kind of coffee and the right kind of music that will entertain me to the right amount and, and a, a, a pastor that will say things that I politically agree with but never push my heart. And then I can go home to my Athenian house and be happy. And we have lost the idea of what it means to be pushed and to be worked so that we are ready for the battle ahead of us, which is the world we live in, a warfare, a spiritual warfare. Real knowledge humbles people. It makes you eager for the common use. Let me, refer, let me say this again. Real knowledge humbles people and makes you eager for common use. I find it, whenever I see a, a seminarian, I think, if I, you know, if I got my hands on a seminarian, I would make them teach fifth grade uh, fifth grade Sunday school, because most seminarians want to teach the adult class because they have incredible knowledge. After all, they're taking Greek and Hebrew, and if you, if you don't know that, they will certainly tell you. And I think some of us see ourselves as seminarians in which we are not eager for common use of our knowledge. Paul says that they're hungry. In verse 11, thirsty, they're in rags, they're beat up, they're homeless, they're laborers, their hands are dirty. And this is the work of those who are in the work, in the battle, who have real knowledge. And real knowledge mortifies the heart. It seeks to replace itself. And for us older people in this church, as we look at these young people and we see all these problems with them, a lot of the problem is with us as well. Because if you look in verse 14, Paul says, when he gets done with the tongue lashing, he says, I do not write these things to shame you. He's not being sarcastic anymore. Those things will shame them, I hope. He says, I don't write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Those of us that are in the older ages, those of you on the other side of 35, those of you in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and above, are we grabbing onto any of these young people and saying, imitate me? Imitate me. I am doing what I can to imitate Christ. Do what I do. When I, was in the, when I was in basic training and our drill sergeants were teaching us how to shoot our weapons and looking down, uh, down range, knowing which eye to shut, knowing how to put the tip of our finger on the trigger so that we don't pull it to the right when we, when we shoot, to know how to get the, the butt of the weapon deep into our shoulders so that, we can, so that we can shoot well. And they said to take a deep breath and let it out and hold it and fire. At no time did we look at them and say, well, you're pretty arrogant. But instead we say, I want to do what you're doing. And the drill sergeants are basically saying, imitate us. We have been in the war. We have fought. And this is what you need to do if you want to live. And I wonder how much of us older, older ones in the church have done any battle. That we can go to the younger and say, imitate me. I've been in the battle. Let me show you what fighting is like. It is hard. It takes sacrifice. It's going to hurt. And it's not what you think. You think that maybe the Christian life is going to be exciting and the thing that's going to make you feel happy about yourself and feel good about yourself, but really, there's a lot of pain in it. There's a lot of battles in it. There's a lot of disappointment in it. And this is how you fight when Satan comes with those disappointments, with that depression, with the sadness of this world. And let me show you what kind of weapons you need. Ephesians 6 tells us what the weapons are. Goes through the big list. And then says, praying always. As if, put on your armor. Put on the helmet of salvation. Grab your shield of faith. Grab the sword of the Lord. Grab your weaponry and then go to prayer. Because that's where the fighting is. Calvin says that we fight by prayer. Those of us that are older here, have we been displaying to the younger our fight in prayer? Our battles that we have fought, have we given anything to the younger to say, this is how you fight. This is how you hold your sword. This is how you position your helmet. And this is how you get on the battlefield of prayer and fight. Fight with me. Imitate me. Do what I'm doing. Yes, we need a generation that's willing to humble itself to listen. But we also need a generation to teach them 
who has sufficiently been in battle so that they know what to teach. If you don't find yourself in battle, if you don't find yourself very engaged with the enemy, then I encourage you to start engaging so you have something to teach our kids in this, in this place. Those of you that have fought and you have done your work in prayer and you know how to hold your sword and you know how to position your helmet, reach out to the young ones and tell them, follow me, imitate me. Because that is how Trinity Presbyterian Church is going to grow. It's going to grow as we start getting our regiment better fit to fight. Where we teach our younger ones how to fight and we grab them because we know what war is like.